The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 9. Now, going on. There are a number of secondary figures with objects in this scene. Of particular interest in Tomb 1 are the paisley-shaped fruits that appear to float in the background. These are called eulichus and have been identified as a member of the papaya family. Native people in the tropical forests of South America recognize the anticoagulant property of this fruit, and it is thought that the moki may have used it to keep the human blood from coagulating during the sacrifice ceremony. Why? Well, it's interesting, quoting still, it's interesting that Eulichus are associated with two activities in Moki art and involve the ritual cons- consumption of blood, the sacrifice ceremony, and deer hunting. Deer are often anthropomorphized, sometimes as warriors or as prisoners with ropes around their necks. The ritual hunting of deer was clearly analogous to the capture and sacrifice of warriors. And there you see this link between human and animal sacrifice, perfectly clearly. You see, in during periods of drought, so to speak, when there aren't any, when one can't harvest some sacrificial victims from uh, nearby cultures, there are always deer wandering the hills, and so one can perform the sacrifice that way. So there you have. It. A little bit later on, it says the sacrifice ceremony was clearly of great importance in the religion of Moki people, and their artists, like Christian artists depicting the nativity were able to manipulate, combine, or separate out its symbolic elements to create masterful works of art, each of which would have been perfectly recognizable to the Moki. Masterful works of art. I attended a seminar yesterday on art, and so now I'm an expert. No, no, (laughs) now I'm more confused than ever. But masterful works of art, I suppose so, technically. One has to say that's true. Does art have a revelatory responsibility? Well, most people would say yes, but then if you, if you, you know, ask that responsibility be met, maybe some people... I don't know. The point is, can such things be masterful works of art? It goes to, in my mind, it goes back to this question of whether or not myths like the myth of Osiris can be used to tell us about the psyche. You see? Uh, Once we know that this was what we now know it was, can it be regarded as masterful works of art? I'm not sure. I don't know the answer. I say that's a question for you. But in any event, technically at least, these are masterful works of art. What does that mean? That means that whatever these rituals were, they they inspired, they were they were profoundly galvanizing events. So, 
one last thing, and then I'll uh, then I'll move on. The moat, uh, referring now to another uh, an, another part of the uh, of the tombs that were unearthed. One of the major motifs was the image of uh, human sacrifice carried out by a uh, a figure who was who was referred to as the decapitator and for obvious reasons that's what he did a quote a supernatural figure who holds a crescent shaped blade in one hand with a rope like lanyard curving up above his clenched fist in the other he holds a human head by the hair he's an, he's he's depicted uh, anthropomorphized as a spider which is appropriate because the spider uh, uh, captures its prey, ties it up, and then drinks its vital fluid, and that's the point. In this sacrificial ritual, the the priest drink the blood of the victim. Now, this is again where somebody would say, "Ah, if I, I'm not, you know, I don't bear an animus against Joseph Campbell. Uh, he's smarter than I am, and." Had I been writing when he was writing, I would have said shallower things than he said, no doubt. But the point is, if Joseph Campbell were doing this back in the years when he was doing things, he would have said, there's the Eucharist for you. Okay, one last thing from this Smithsonian exhibit, reading from the, the book that was produced about it. Quote, when the sacrifice ceremony with its distinct priest and symbolic elements was first identified in Moki art in 1974, we wondered whether this ceremony was actually enacted by the Moki or whether it was played out by deities in some mythical setting. Since the only evidence of the ceremony was in the artistic depictions, we had no way of knowing whether it was a mythical or a real event. The anthropomorphized bird and animal figures certainly seemed mythical. Could it be? We ask ourselves that, Mo that the Moki actually sacrificed their prisoners of war and consumed their blood. This is a charming little passage because it, it tells the story of we Westerners losing our romanticism. And this is literally what it means to have the, the, the tombs of the Holy Ones opened and the, and, uh, the bodies come out. Suddenly you realize, hey, wait a second. This is not mythical. This actually happened. Now, in Washington that day, I went into the Smithsonian. I went through this. I, I was, it was one of those moments when you're in a sort of a space, you know what I mean, and you're taking in things more profoundly than you might otherwise. And I was listening to the tape, which is informative, much more informative than I've been here. And I walked through and I saw these things that were really unbelievable. And then the exhibit was over, and I hung up my earphones and turned the corner, and there I was in the gift shop. And what do you think? There it was. You want to buy a little trinket? Buy a little souvenirs of this? You want your own little version of you want your own little version of the of the decapitating scepter? You want to buy a? And I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I understand this. You see, the Smithsonian has to pay its bills. I don't know what we we. But I've thought to myself, it's like going through the Holocaust Museum and coming out and and buying Nazi memorabilia. 
It was unbelievable. So it was an example of resealing the tomb a little bit. Going back and smoothing it over. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. And, well, we should just bear that in mind. When the gospel says they have eyes and cannot see and ears and cannot hear, to some extent we are all morally responsible for that condition to the extent that we labor under it. And it takes moral effort to break out of it and so on. But it's also a recognition of the transition that we're making from a world of myth to the world of gospel. And so I have one more example to share with you about that. And in a way, it's the one that's my favorite, if you could say that about these terrible things. Uh, A favorite because it really has more to do with us. And... That is, first of all, let me first of all let me uh, introduce it this way. I've said, and I think it's true that structurally you could say that conventional culture lasts from the moment of its founding violence, the generative violence that that creates the camaraderie that out of which culture is is made, from the moment of that founding or generative violence until the sacrality of that violence wears off and the system begins to fall apart. And then you have a crisis which is either resolved ritually or in a full-blown re-enactment of the original crisis. And you either have a new culture or a cultural revival which has a sacrificial ingredient which brings it about. So that's the way... That's Nietzsche's eternal return. That's how culture is created and falls apart, created and falls apart. When Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher, says violence both destroys and creates, that's what he's talking about. The the chaotic violence destroys the culture, and when it's polarized perfectly onto a a victim, it generates culture. So, So culture lives from the moment of the founding or generative violence till the moment when its sacrality wears off. And its sacrality wears off precisely when we begin to see its victim. That's why the victim is always the Rorschach test. Can you really see the victim? And if you can, then the the sacral uh, mystification has worn off and you're about to stumble upon the gospel truth. Well, that's not entirely true. The gospel truth uh, is is more profound than that. But nevertheless, the... The, the mythic veil, the epistemological block is about to be removed. Well, <clears throat> we're living at the end of a, of a cultural m- moment in many ways, really. But in, in one way, everybody knows... There are a few people who don't, apparently. I, occasionally you see... S- things by people who haven't gotten the news. But for the most part, everybody realizes that the Enlightenment is over, uh, that the Enlightenment is finished. And I talked about this last week, I think it was, when I was saying that with the uh, Renaissance uh, humanism, Enlightenment rationality and so on, we took the gospel eschatological promise, we took the eschatological promise of the gospel 
and converted it into something secular, namely the idea of progress. We converted its hope, which is theological, into optimism. And the idea of progress and, and the idea of simple optimism have, is, is collapsing, has been collapsing. Uh, yesterday, we had a little conversation about this, and uh, as Gerard says, uh, you know, the Europeans knew that it was over after World War I. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and he says, Andre Malraux understood this too. He said, after World War I, the, the Enlightenment project was still only alive in Russia and in America. That's very interesting, isn't it? You see, versions of it. Two sort of twin versions of that optimism, prog hope in progress, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But according to Andre Malraux, uh, after World War One, Europeans, serious Europeans, understood that that was. It. Nevertheless, even now, it's catching up with the Russians and the Americans in in different ways. You know. Uh, nevertheless, well, you could say that one of the features of that humanism and that rationalism was that it regarded itself as non-sacrificial and as no longer being encumbered by any of those things. The truth, however, is that it was secretly indebted to the non-sacrificial truth of the gospel on one hand and secretly encumbered by other sacrificial truths to which it was turning. When in the Renaissance and later in the Enlightenment, when the Western world looked for some kind of respite from the gospel revelation, it turned to Athens. Because it seemed when one looked at Athens, one saw civilization, composure, rationality, humanity, democracy, all these wonderful things without all of the craziness of the uh, of the biblical tradition, all this stuff about violence and I mean there was that of course, but it seemed it seemed less so there. So we turn to uh, Athens. If we need a marker to designate as we often do, you know, when our paradigms come to an end, sometimes we need some kind of marker in the same way that for Andre Malraux, World War I was the marker, you see. When our paradigms come to an end or uh, a, a cultural epoch comes to an end, it's nice sometimes to have a marker. If we need a marker for the collapse of uh, Renaissance and particularly Enlightenment uh, humanism and rationalism, I think it might be the new understanding of what is actually depicted on the Parthenon frieze. The Parthenon is not just a architectural structure. The Parthenon represented in many ways everything that fascinated Europeans about Athens. It was it was it stood for everything that glowed in the eyes of uh, Europeans when they when they turned from the biblical tradition to the to the Greek tradition. So it's not just another building. It's very important architecturally. 
And so what would happen if we were to discover that this building commemorated something of the same sort of thing that I've been talking about? What would that mean? Well, it would mean, well, our romantic the bloom is off the rose and uh, our romanticism is over. Yes, but what it really means is that the kingdom is breaking in on us. It means that something else is being revealed. And what I refer to is a recent, very persuasive interpretation of the Parthenon frieze, which sees it as a depiction of a human sacrifice. Now, this is very interesting because even though historical events, to the contrary, are quite glaring, nevertheless, the uh, Enlightenment thought of itself as being uh, a non-sacrificial thing. The, the, uh, the Renaissance humanism thought of itself as being non-sacrificial. And then we look back at the central shrine, in a way, uh, that at, at which the Renaissance humanism and Enlightenment uh, rationality worshipped, and we find out it's a shrine to human sacrifice. That's the breaking in of the gospel on our myths. So here's the story. And speaking of the breaking of the gospel on our myths, it's very interesting to me that this story appeared in the New York Times on July 4th. Because the hardest thing to sit, the hardest violence to really recognize is the founding violence. And so that's the last one we really want to expose. And I think we can legitimately argue that for the modern world, we had no founding violence, at least in terms of our mythology. We had no founding violence because we, we, were, we were rational, humanistic. We were trying to adopt the Greeks. And it turns out we were, we were essentially feeding on their founding violence. So in some ways, the founding violence of, of modern rationality was the founding violence of Athens. And now we have we realize that it was boldly depicted right there in front of our face, and we couldn't see it. We had eyes but could not see. And the gospel is what helps us to recover our sight. Not because it wants us to look at all these gory things, but because the, the revelation of the truth about God is always on the other side of the cross. And in order to get there, you have to go through that experience of seeing it for what it is and hearing the cock crow. So here we have a modern version of that. And so I'll read to you from this New York Times article. Standing in columned splendor atop the Acropolis of Athens, the Parthenon is the paragon of classical architecture and has long been a shrine of Western civilization. The Greeks built this temple to the goddess Athena in the 5th century B.C. in the golden age of Pericles. So, reading further. Set high above on all sides in the shadow of the exterior colonnade was a 524-foot frieze in low relief depicting various stages of what appeared to be a single solemn ceremony. A cavalcade of mounted soldiers was followed by people bringing animals to sacrifice and bearing offerings by musicians, maidens, and elders. They approached a central scene above the east entrance where, among other figures, a man and child held a large cloth. The interpretation of these scenes is now facing a serious challenge. 
The original interpretation was, quote, that the frieze represented the Pan-Athenaic Festival, which was held every four years to commemorate the birth of Athena. This is a little bit like uh, the nativity story, right? <laughs> Let's go to the nativity. Cut to the nativity, please. <laughs> okay, now from the article. Now, the discovery of fragments of a lost play by Euripides. This is very exciting to me. This is what... This is so much better than, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark or some of these hokey things. This is, this is real drama here. This is real drama. How does, the, how, does, how does the gospel break in on us? How do we realize these things, you know what I mean? It's like discovering the tombs of, of the pond. So it says, Now the discovery of fragments of a lost play by Euripides found on papyrus in the wrapping of an Egyptian mummy. See, you couldn't make it up. If you <laughs> you couldn't make this should be done. Somebody should do a screenplay. Okay, so the fragments of a lost play by Euripides, found on papyrus in the wrapping of an Egyptian mummy, and the diligent research of an American archaeologist have produced a much different explanation than the birthday one. The scenes of the frieze do not depict a 5th century procession, according to, these, to this new thesis, but instead evoke the Athenian founding myth of a king's precious sacrifice to save his city from defeat. Such an interpretation may be more satisfying to scholars and more revealing of early Greek culture and mythology, but it may also become controversial and eventually even disillusioning. Well, you see, illusions, if, if we live in illusions, disillusionment is progress. So then the article goes on. To think that this iconic structure of grace and just proportion could turn out to have been dedicated to the glorification of a practice as primitive, cruel, and irrational as the sacrifice of children. Oh. Isn't it? You see, you can feel the, you can feel something breaking in on the myth. This is why progress, optimism, people say to me, sometimes people hear some of the things I do and they say, gee, this is terrible. You're not very optimistic. And uh, are, are, don't you think we're going to, are we going to get out of this or something like that? And I'm a pretty happy guy, basically. <laughs> and the reason I'm happy is because you have to have, it's like Jeremiah saying the tree has to have its, be, you know, planted by the riverside. And you have, and Abraham Heschel says you, our roots have to go deeper than the, than the, you know, hopes and fears of history. And if we don't touch that eschatological hope and promise, then, you know, we're going to feel terrible when these things happen, you see. That's why we resist it. Nobody wants to hear about this. To the extent that we have our roots in the eschatological hope and promise, these things, fine, they don't bother us. But if we don't, we, don't, we want to get up and leave. We don't want to hear it. And there's something right about that because we, we somehow intuitively realize that without these little, these little illusory hopes, we'll become nihilist. And I would say that's true, except there's another alternative, which is to get in touch with the eschatological promise and hope. Nevertheless, here you have it. So anyway, this is a marvelous sentence, don't you think? 
to think that this iconic structure of grace and just proportion could turn out to have been dedicated to the glorification of a practice as primitive, cruel, and irrational as the sacrifice of children. And worse, that it dated from the time the Greeks were boldly experimenting with democracy and rationalism. Boy, doesn't that say it. You remember when I was talking about this, the, uh, the Moki civilization, the archaeologists say this was a thriving, booming civilization. And this is what we have to realize. And so this sacrificial event is happening concurrently with the experiments in democracy and rationalism. By the way, this is what in Violence Unveiled I tried to say about Greek rationalism. It never gets back to this. It, it will circle around it, circle around it. It will never get to it. The tragedians got to it. And that's why the key to this whole thing is a lost piece of a fragment of a play by Euripides. You, you know, if somebody's going to get to it in the Greek world, it's going to be the tragedians. But they came and went. And philosophy went into this orbit around the sacrificial event and never got back to it. So anyway, this was when democracy and Greek rationalism were uh, in, in their uh, heyday. Let me go back and read that whole sentence. And worse, it, this sacrifice, ch child sacrifice ritual, dated from the time the Greeks were boldly experimenting with democracy and rationalism from that age whose creative spirit the Renaissance sought to emulate. There you have, this is, this is really quite something. Quote, in a close reading of the legend of Erechtheus, the heroic king of early Athens, Dr. Joan Brenton Conley, an associate professor of fine arts at New York University, came to realize that the scene above the east entrance in the frieze could represent the sacrifice of the young daughters of the king. Now, I'm just going to read the next three paragraphs to you and think about them. The newly discovered Euripidean text, she said, shows that the story of Erechtheus and virgin sacrifices for the good of the city were themes resonating among the Athenians at the time the Parthenon was being built in the heady years following their defeat of the Persians at Marathon. Viewed in this light, the five individuals in the Peplos scene, Peplos being the cloth that's depicted in that major scene, uh, the five individuals in the scene could be the mythic royal family, Erechtheus, his wife Praxithia, and their three daughters. The three girls may well be preparing for death. The youngest girl's funerary dress is being unfolded. She will go first. The oldest daughter, second from the left, is in the process of handing down a stool to her mother. The daughter at the far left faces to the front with the garment still folded and carried upon the stool on her head. Dr. Connolly said this new interpretation, quote, has far-reaching implications for our understanding of the role of women in Greek myth and culture, end quote. Greek writings of the time were making much of the sentiment attributed to Praxithia that just as boys go to war, girls go to sacrifice, both for the good of the polis, the city-state. Now, isn't that something? This is an early form of 
equality. We have, no, no, wait a minute. You don't realize that war is a sacrificial ritual and the prestige, prestige in ancient culture is always in direct proximity to the sacrificial event. And if you're close to the sacrificial event, you have tremendous prestige. If you're the manipulator of it, you have tremendous prestige. If you're the victim of it, you have tremendous prestige. In the sense that if you fall in war, you're remembered as a, as a great hero. You're sacralized. And the same way, you have the same thing. Women didn't fight in war, and, the, and therefore they could not take part in any of that prestige. And here you have, pra you have Praxithia. You have Praxithia saying, the, the girls ought to have a bit, as big a shot at it as the boys do in their version of the sacrificial ritual. So then the New York Times reporter interviews a number of people about the profundity of this new interpretation. I think she may be proved right, said Homer A. Thompson, an emeritus professor at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, who at the age of 88 is the grand old man of classical Greek archaeology. Dr. William St. Clair, fellow at All Souls College at Oxford University and author of Lord Elgin and the Marbles, called Dr. Conley's thesis nothing short of revolutionary and not unreasonable. Writing in the Times Literary Supplement of London recently, St. Clair said, quote, It is surprising in retrospect that nobody familiar with the conventions of Greek temple decoration had thought of the new interpretation before. It is surprising, isn't it? <laughs> and so you ask yourself, along with uh, Dr. Sinclair, what kept them from thinking of it? You see? It's surprising, really. When you So there it was. This is having eyes and not seeing. So uh, the article goes on to say that most scholars have chosen to ignore such questions and cling to standard explanations, but not Dr. Conley. Uh, and now she's let her explanation loose on the world. Dr. Conley said she began to question accepted ideas about the frieze four years ago while studying Greek priestesses. At the same time, she happened to be reading the rediscovered lines from the Euripides tragedy about Erechtheus, seeking insights about priestesses. The play was written about 423 B.C., a decade after the completion of the Parthenon. Only 125 lines survived until French technicians in 1962 recovered these papyrus fragments from a mummy at the Louvre in Paris. Now, that's real, to me, that's really exciting work. <laughs> I just think that's fabulous. An Egyptian mummy in the Louvre in Paris, a fragment of Euripides that helps explain the Parthenon, that helps, under, helps us understand the Renaissance. I mean, this is amazing stuff. <laughs> this, is how the God, this is how the kingdom breaks in on us. Uh, it's exciting. It's a great story. And then it goes on. They managed to peel away from the mummy wrappings. I'm, I'm sorry. They managed to peel away the papyrus fragments from the mummy wrappings without destroying the ink writing. Later, Dr. Colin Austin, a scholar at Cambridge University in England, determined that the writing was, a, was 120 lines of the lost Euripidean play. I just think that's fabulous. Makes me want to go be a scholar, but I don't have the equipment for it. Um, so a couple more things. So uh, continuing just a little bit here. 
reading those lines, Dr. Conley recognized that the woman in the Piplos scene was no ordinary priestess, but probably the queen of the myth, Praxithia. In the play's recovered lines, Athena appears to Praxithia with instructions for the burial of the king and the daughters on the Acropolis and for remembering them, quote, with annual sacrifices and bull-slaying slaughters, and, quote, with holy choruses of maidens, end quote. And then continuing to quote the Times article, as for Praxithia, Athena rewarded her by restoring, quote, the foundations of the city, by designating her as, quote, a priestess to make burnt offering at my altar on behalf of the city, end quote. And she becomes the priestess in charge of the sacrificial event. There's another bubble burst, if you'll notice, in terms of our modern presuppositions. The last paragraph in the story is, despite, and I would slightly quibble with this, although I'm tremendously grateful uh, to doc what Dr. Connolly has done, it says, despite the excitement of advancing revolutionary ideas about one of the world's most famous buildings, Dr. Connolly hopes someday to resume her interrupted research on Greek priestesses. Quote, all this has told me more about the Parthenon than about priestesses, she said, not really as a lament, end, end quote. Well, I'm not sure that it doesn't say a little bit about priestesses as well, if we look a little closer. Nevertheless, what I think is important mostly about this is that it sat there for so long, and even in recent times, the incoherence of the existing explanatory theory was clear to people. But, of course, we had to wait for the discovery of the, of the lost lines of Euripides. That's true. And I, here, one would ask two questions. If we had been reading the gospel anthropologically all the while, when would we have discovered this? Would we have discovered it earlier? I think so. And the other question is, without the gospel, would we ever have discovered it, even if we discovered the entire play of Euripides? And the answer is no. I would say. If we had been reading the gospel anthropologically, we would have discovered it with or without the play of Euripides. If we didn't have the gospel, we could have the play of Euripides, we wouldn't have discovered it. Not, I would say not, we wouldn't discover what we're now discovering, which is what it may not just that a certain ritual took place, but we're beginning to feel the significance of that, what that means about us humans. So I offer that as a substitute for something which years from now I will surely know that is vastly superior to all that, which is the chapters 16 to 19 of the Gospel of Luke. But in those chapters, the question arises again and again about how the kingdom is going to break in on the world and how we're going to know where to look where the corpse is, the vultures gather, and so on. Uh, the tombs open at the crucifixion, etc. So I was simply trying to uh, live up to the spirit, if not the letter, of my uh, commitment to uh, the Gospel of Luke here today. These old sacrificial systems that I've been referring to today were a source of stability. They were also a source of illusion 
and all kinds of other things. But they were a source of both cultural and psychological stability, and they're vanishing. When, when Augustine said, uh, our hearts are restless until we rest in thee, I don't think he realized that the restlessness that he was talking about was a product of the biblical tradition in the sense that the old sacred system had a stabilizing effect. And that's when restless Westerners started going all over the globe uh, exploring. They came upon these, uh, these uh, traditional peoples and they immediately began writing home about the noble savage and, and so on because they saw a composure there which was sacrificial but nevertheless very impressive. And the question is, what will be our source? Otherwise, we're just going to be restless, as Augustine said. We are restless. We are restless. Because our source of stability is being shattered, so we have to find another one. And I think this is where Marion and so many other people in the, in the uh, tradition have talked about prayer, contemplation, uh, uh, and so on. And I just want to end on that note because it's, it's ever so much more essential to us inasmuch as the old structures are vanishing. And I thought of it again, and I just bring the passage to you because I was, I was moved by it. I thought of it again. I was reading a text by uh, Romano Guardini, uh, who's always can be relied upon to, to uh, say some very deep and wise things without uh, a whole lot of uh, uh, calling attention to himself. And, and in this thing I was reading, he says the following. Silence overcomes noise and talk. I've been responsible for a fair amount of both of those, so I have, this is my way of repenting here too as well. Silence overcomes noise and talk. Composure is the victory over distractions and unrest. And then Guardini says, only the composed person is really someone. And then in the in a phrase that I really thought was fascinating and powerful, Guardini says that because of our restlessness, confusion, and disorder, quote, we do not yet really exist as persons, at least not persons God can address, expecting a fitting response, end quote. I mentioned this, I mean, it seems we're talking apples and oranges here, but that's the whole point. We're not. I don't think we are. I mention it because as the kingdom breaks in, shatters these old mythic structures, with their passing, we lose the structures that made it possible for us to experience certain cultural and psychological stability, and we can't and we're and we're coming unglued. That's what's happening. We're coming <laughs> unglued, and the gospel has another source for that. And I think we, we, have to, uh, we have to appreciate that. And that source is another kind of selfhood, a hypostatic, hypostatic selfhood, a selfhood that does not involve an entity called the self, unless one says a discipleship self, a self that is... That cannot be distinguished entirely uh, from 
the God who is the ground of its being. And if we, I probably should have taken more time to make the segue between all of that sacrificial stuff and this business about uh, selfhood, but uh, we didn't have the time. But in any event, I did want to insist again that they are related, and that if the if these uh, these old structures pass without some compensating <coughs> shifts on our part, then the world will suffer from the very violence that these sacred systems existed to ward off. Well, something just popped into my head, which is something, I think it was Lord Acton, uh, although I'm not sure at all, but I think it was who said something to the effect that uh, the measure of character is the degree to which somebody can keep two contradictory ideas in mind at the same time without being thrown off by them. Something like that. I don't really remember. Uh, but that comes to me right now because we're at the place in Luke's Gospel where Jesus is entering Jerusalem for a purpose which only he knows about. And it, it, uh, the disciples of Jesus and certainly the crowds in Jerusalem are unable to keep the two contradictory aspects of his entry into Jerusalem in mind at the same time. Uh, and they are, to use the language that's more suited to John's gospel, uh, they are the, uh, the suffering and the glory. Uh, and Luke, like the author of the Gospel of John, but less so, more subtly, sees, of course, both of those things. And so he uses material that's in the early Christian tradition uh, to try to bring that out, as do uh, the other uh, evangelists. So when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he choreographs his entry. At least that's what we have here in the Gospels, is the sense of Jesus choreographing things. Chor to, to call it choreography is, is a little demeaning because it implies some kind of clunky pre-knowledge of what's going to happen, which I think would be out of place. On the other hand, Jesus knows and is, uh, the, uh, is in the tradition of prophetic signs, and we have to keep in mind always, I think, this, this is my reading of the Gospel of Luke, uh, that Jesus is working with his disciples, preparing them for understanding things later. As I have said several times before, I think they're, the, 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 in Luke's story of the Gospel at least, and in the others really, but surely in Luke, the disciples are in a fog. And they're in a fog that they can't get out of until the cross. And so Jesus tries to talk to them about what's going on, what it means, what, what uh, the Messiah will have to undergo, and so on. They can't get it. And so they're in that fog, and he accepts that and begins to prepare them to see it, to have the scales fall from their eyes in retrospect after the crucifixion. And so I think that's the context in which you can understand some kind of choreography on the part of Jesus within quotation marks here. 
that Jesus actually takes charge of this. This is when he says in the, the Gospel of John, I lay down my life and I can pick it up again. Uh, this is, this is a, an, a, a conscious act, a decision on Jesus' part. Uh, and he knows how to frame it so that it, those who experience the cross will be better able to understand it in retrospect. And so he, uh, much in the way that he prepares for the Last Supper here, he sends the two disciples into a village and tells them to get a colt that has never been ridden uh, and bring it to him. And if uh, the owner asks why you're doing that, just tell him that the Lord needs it. Now the cult, this is a this is an echo this is an echo of a Markan reference to the prophet Zechariah, and in Zechariah he portrays the king, the messianic king, coming victorious and triumphant, but riding on the colt of a donkey, in humility. Coming in, we should say, by the way, in Zechariah, this triumphant king riding in humility comes in in order to banish the chariots and the war horses. So you have in the biblical tradition a, a, a tension here between the, the cult of a donkey and a war horse. Jesus chooses a prophetic act which sounds a royal theme, but at the same time emphasizes a new kind of royalty and one that will be an alternative to the kind of triumphant royalty represented by the war horse and the chariot. So I think he's doing this in order to prepare his disciples for understanding things later. Well, of course, they pick up on one aspect of it and not on the other. They pick up on the royal aspect of it, and they begin to uh, be uh, sing and feel triumphant and spread their cloaks uh, in front of him and so on. And then the text says, as he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully in a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is a quotation from the uh, Psalm 118, but it's not a direct quotation because in Psalm 118, uh, the reference is to the one who will come, not to the King. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 13 of Luke, Jesus had said, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, quote, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So in chapter 13, he does not mention king. He, it's a more direct quotation from, the Psalm, from Psalm 118. And so we say to ourselves, ah, if we, if we don't pay careful attention to the text, we say, ah, now they see him. And in a way, it's true, they do see him. They, they are recognizing his his primacy, his kingly role, his royal status, his messianic identity. That's true. But I think the use of the word king here is a, is a way of indicating that they don't see the other side of it. And it's appropriate. It's an absolutely appropriate response. But it's not the same thing. So when Jesus says in chapter 13, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and here they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We would say, almost, but not quite. You see, they didn't quite get the other side of it. They're still full of enthusiasm. Jesus, on the other hand, is, is aware of how, of how fragile things are. 
he's aware that this kind of enthusiasm can turn very quickly into panic or into some kind of demand for a, a victim, that this is a typical crowd enthusiasm. Not, maybe not quite typical, but nevertheless it has that dimension to it. And I, I feel there may be a hint of this in the next verses where the Pharisees object to all this because they see the messianic implications of it. And so they say to Jesus, teacher, teacher, see, they're not talking king or lord. They still see him as a rabbi. Teacher, order your disciples to stop doing this. They're getting carried away. They're going over the top. They're talking in this other way. And Jesus said to them, I tell you, if they fall silent, the very stones would shout out. Now, I have to admit to some enthusiasms of my own. Here, I, we're critiquing this crowd's enthusiasm. I fell into a few of my own enthusiasms in the sense that I found myself following little things and getting completely caught up in my, in my mid-rash uh, approach to things here. But this reference to the stones themselves would shout out began to intrigue me because there are many, many references to stones in this part of the gospel, to stone, one kind of stone or another. Stones of the temple, stumbling blocks, cornerstones, stones rejected by the builders. I mean, over and over, there's all kinds of references to stones. So I became intrigued. And I don't think you can, you can uh, correlate them all that easily. Nevertheless, this reference here, the stones themselves would shout out, is an echo of the theme, or to some extent a paraphrase, of a theme sounded in the book of the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is, is, uh, is cursing the oppressor, the Chaldeans, who were the oppressors uh, of the Jews at the time. And he says of them that the very stones will protest from the walls. So what does that mean, one wonders? Well, a very few verses after this reference here in Luke, we have the following. I won't read the text. It's just a few verses, but it's, it's where the, uh, uh, the elders of the people and scribes question Jesus about his authority. Where did he get his authority? And he says, well, if you'll tell me about John's baptism, where was, was that from heaven or of human origin? I'll tell you where I get my authority. And it says... They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? And if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us. For they, they are convinced that John is a prophet. So they didn't answer, and Jesus said, Well, I'm not going to tell you either. Well, this reference here to stoning, the people will stone, what does that mean? That means that the scribes and the elders realize that uh, this enthusiastic crowd is perfectly capable of suddenly grabbing at stones. Well, I offer that as a little meditation retrospectively on this passage where Jesus says, if they fall silent, if I hush them up, the stones themselves will cry out. Uh, I think there's, I wouldn't want to interpret the text this way, but I think there's an innuendo from the point of view of the Midrash, not from the point of view of strict biblical scholarship. There's an innuendo here that uh, this crowd... Uh, is capable of 
being uh, it's a very fickle phenomenon crowds are a very fickle phenomenon and you don't just shut them up like that without things turning around and the, by the way we'll see this later on the the Pharisees and the scribes seem to understand this as well they understand the fickleness of the crowd perfectly well and that's why they try to trick Jesus up they try to get him to say something that will put him out of favor with the crowd knowing that the crowd can be can turn on him in an instant and so there's there's that in the text okay so then Jesus comes to the place where he looks out at the city of Jerusalem and he saw the city and he wept over it the text says and he says if you Jerusalem if you even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes now the things that make for peace Jerusalem was busy, was busily involved in what it thought were the things that make for peace it was busily involved in in constructing its its uh, patriot patriotic uh, uh, ethos and busily involved at that very time meaning preparation for passover to uh, engage in all the sacrificial routines which were its way of of uh, making for peace and Jesus announces here that that they have not recognized the way for making peace and this is the the one who just rode in on the on the uh, on the uh, colt of a donkey rather than a war horse so he has another idea about how peace is made in any event he's, he recognizes also that all of this is hidden from their eyes and again this is this idea of some kind of some kind of veil or fog or epistemological handicap that prevails until the cross. It doesn't, however, prevail in Jesus' own mind and heart. And he says, Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will crush you, you and your children, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another. There, there it is again. So, this idea of this—he's this, now talking really about the temple, and the temple was destroyed in the year seventy. And Luke is writing after the destruction of the temple, and second only to the crucifixion and resurrection, the destruction of the temple was the central experience of the first Christian communities, the, the, or the, the you know the second and third generation of the Christian communities. They they saw that as related to the cross. And that was a raw intuition that is worked out in various ways in the New Testament. And it can be critiqued. The way in which that intuition was was articulated in the New Testament is articulated variously in the New Testament. And one can, from you know, 2020 hindsight and historical perspectives and and, a, and a, a notion of historiography that's totally different from the first centuries and so on, we can look back and we can say, well, yeah, but that really wasn't that. I mean, you, don't, you can't see a direct causal historical link between the crucifixion and the destruction of <coughs> Jerusalem and so on. All the more astounding, in my opinion, that the New Testament writers made that link 
because those logical, what to, what to us are logical, historiographical uh, connections weren't there, nevertheless they made that link. Not only that, they, they also saw the destruction of Jerusalem as paradigmatic of something far wider and far more significant for culture generally and history in general. And I think that's unbelievable. That's the fact that they made that. It's you could say, well, it was it was a big event. You had to incorporate it, maybe. Nevertheless, it ended up in the New Testament as paradigmatic of the effect on culture and history of the cross, and that's quite remarkable. So the very the very reason why most not most, but the very reason that many uh, biblical scholars in the in the school of historical criticism might have objections to this connection for that for those very reasons i would say it's an astounding connection the intuition is absolutely apropos and it connects with what is a very major theme in this part of luke's gospel namely the apocalyptic uh, language and so that's really what we're going to talk about here in a few minutes but also i just wanted to mention not one stone will be left on another now, we could see that as a prediction of the, of the Romans crushing the, the Jews at Jerusalem in the year 70 and destroying the temple. On the other hand, we can see that in terms of a much wider theme, and there'll be some more language about that uh, towards the end of this morning's session, but a much wider theme in the, in the Gospel of Luke, which is scattering, breaking apart, dissolving, fracturing, this whole idea of if you do not gather with me, you'll be scattered. So not one stone left on another is another echo of this theme, that things are going to fall apart. The glue that once held them together is going to turn into an explosive, and things are going to just start falling apart, that we have to discover a new kind of glue. If you do not gather with me, you'll be scattered. And I think we have to see this reference here to not one stone will be left on another as an, as an echo of that. What's interesting as well, because another one of the little bones I've been chewing on for the last few weeks or preoccupied with, this notion of the epistemological significance of the cross. And I just remind you again, epistemology means the way we know things. And I really feel that the cross, as you now know, I don't need to say it again, that the, that the cross uh, shatters the epistemological envelope that existed prior to it. And only, on the far side of the cross, only Jesus is fully aware of what we Christians and we humans living after the cross are slowly becoming aware of as the paraclete gradually brings us up to speed on what was in Jesus' mind and heart prior to the, to the crucifixion which, as you can probably guess, may take from now till the uh, eschaton. In, in any event, I, I'm interested in that, and so I was interested in reading some of these commentaries. One by Dennis McBri McBride was interesting to me. He said, Jesus' own knowledge isolates him. He's the only one who knows why the fate of Jerusalem and his own fate are so closely linked. And I think that's pretty interesting it goes back to this thing i was saying about the the marvel that the new testament has this link here because we still aren't quite sure of that link why is it 
and I think the work, uh, the anthropological work that uh, Girard has begun, is, uh, is, is helps us begin to understand that link, which is there in the gospel because of the Holy Spirit, no doubt. What, but the point I want to make is that Jesus, it's the mind of Jesus already before the cross that sees that what is going, about to happen to him will be decisive for Jerusalem, for uh, biblical Israel, for the world. He, 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 he understands that. And for me, that underscores the significance of some of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So I just want to touch on those in passing. This is a little excursus on the question of the, epistem the epistemological aspect of all these things. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the mind of Christ. And when we hear the mind of Christ, we shouldn't be too cerebral about it. Uh, the mind of Christ is not a logical, rational thinking through of things or having it all figured out. Uh, it's the mind and heart of Christ or the mind and heart and soul of Christ. It's, that's precisely the, the nature of the epistemological revolution that he brings into the world that is no longer something happening only in the cognitive uh, arena, nor is it happening solely in the, in the world of, uh, of feelings or emotions or any of that. It's something more, much more comprehensive. Anyway, that's just a, that's just a, uh, a, a, a caveat about this word mind. In, in any event, Paul, uh, Paul is talking about this. He says, we are those who have the mind of Christ. In other words, the mind of Christ that uh, McBride is talking about, that exists prior to the, to the cross, can be ours after the cross. And I think this relates to what Paul says a little earlier in 1 Corinthians, in that famous passage where he says, quote, As Scripture says, I shall destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the learn learning of the learned. Where are the philosophers now? Where are the scribes? The philosophers and scribes would have been the, the, uh, the intellectual powerhouses of the two worlds of the time, namely the Jewish and Greek world. The scribes were the experts in, in the Torah, in the scripture, and in the law. And the, the philosophers were the thinkers of Greek culture. And he says, where are they now? They, this is after the cross. They, they can't, their enterprise is incapable of, however brilliant they may be, their enterprise is incapable of bringing them to the kind of truth that we can brought, be brought to simply by being by faith in the crucified one. So he says, where are the philosophers now? Where are the scribes? So, he says, while the Jews demand miracles and the Greeks look for wisdom, here we are preaching a crucified Christ, which was a... which the, the first people to preach a crucified Christ, of course, were laughed at. It was ridiculous. We don't realize after 2,000 years it was totally absurd. It was, it was like saying, well, the Savior of the world uh, is this guy that's on death row at San Quentin. You see, it was a joke. And they, many Christians wanted to downplay it. And Paul says, no, we cannot downplay it. That's precisely it. It's the crucified Christ that we preach. So here he says, we preach a crucified Christ. The Jews want miracles. The Greeks want wisdom. 
A crucified Christ is to the Jews a scandal that they cannot get over, and to the pagans or the Greeks a madness. But to those who have been called, whether they are Jews or Greeks, a Christ who is the power and wisdom of God. Well, I just wanted to sound this theme because it's it's an, it's one that's of interest to me these days, and also because it shows that this mind of Christ that existed in him prior to the cross is bequeathed to us afterward. And we slowly can be, be uh, brought into its purview. And when Paul here says, you see, the, the Jews are studying their scriptures and the Greeks are thinking things through rationally. And Paul says, we who are called by the cross and the one resurrected in its aftermath, we who are called understand things that they cannot understand. And I would say that the important word here is called, responding to the invitation of the other. And so I will end this little excursion by quoting something that's very interesting in this regard, I think, at least to me, from uh, Henri de Lubac. De Lubac says, If without philosophical education we can resist those who tell us that the ultimate stuff of being is matter, this goes back to this whole question of being, ontological questions, you know, but uh, be, the stuff of being is matter. This is a kind of Aristotelian notion that the world is really the material world and how it relates. So Dudelok says, if without philosophical education we can resist those who tell us that the ultimate stuff of being is matter, it is because the mystery of the Trinity has opened us to an entirely new perspective, namely that the ultimate stuff of being is communion. It's that exchange that Jean-Luc Marion talked about in the passages from his work that I quoted a few weeks ago. Well, that's an excursion. I, 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 I don't know. I'm just following my little uh, fascinations here more than doing anything very systematic. So Jesus enters Jerusalem realizing what it means. Nobody else realizes it. And I said earlier that Jerusalem was the place and Passover was the time. And that Jesus had a sense that 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 it was where those two crossed uh, spatially and temporally that uh, his passion had to take place. And again, he performs a very radical prophetic sign, ensuring, in a way, that they will coincide, that his passion will coincide with the events of the Passover. We have in the Gospels. Hence that the authorities who opposed Jesus wanted to dispose of him elsewhere or some other time. So there's a little, you could, I mean, this is too, uh, this is not right either, but you could say that there's a little contest going on about whether or not it's actually going to take place in Jerusalem at the Passover or not. And you could say in order to ensure that, Jesus marches straight into the temple and overturns the tables of those selling things there, saying, 
it is written, so quoting scripture, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of robbers. And this is a very provocative act which does exactly what Jesus knew it would do. and It brought the opposition to him into focus. Perhaps worth mentioning is the fact that this is this selling of things or money changing was not an incidental thing. It was actually part of the sacrificial operation in order for people to to make their obligatory sacrifices at Passover time. They had to come in. They had to change coins because they were coming from various places where various coinages were used. They had to buy sacrificial animals. They didn't carry them with them on some, some of these long treks that brought them in from the outlying areas. Uh, and they had to, uh, there was a lot of business that went on. This, the temple in Jerusalem was the center, was the commercial center of the city. It was the, it was the engine of economic activity in Jerusalem. Everything's centered around the temple. I mean, the temple made, was it was the tourist business. It was the selling of sacrificial things. It was a very big business. So Jesus goes in and turns over these these tables. It's not as though he's he's reforming. He's suggesting that the temple reform. I think he's going right to the heart of it. Without this, you can't operate the thing. And and clearly, Jesus is not. I mean, Jeremiah might have wanted to reform the the temple, and somebody like Josiah might have reformed it uh, under his uh, prodding, which is what happened at the time of Jeremiah. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's having a confrontation with the temple. He's precipitating a confrontation uh, with the temple. And the chief priests and scribes look for a way to, to kill him, but they're afraid of the people. Shortly after that, Jesus gives the parable of the wicked tenants. And I think we have to see it in light of his confrontation with the temple. And you know this story, but uh, just briefly, it is that the vineyard owner uh, leases out his vineyard to those who will who will uh, care for it and bring in its produce. And when it's time for the harvest, he sends a servant. And they uh, beat him and send him away empty-handed. He, he sent another servant. They beat him and threw him out and sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third they did the same thing. Finally, he said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, which is a technical term just about in the New Testament. I will send my beloved son. Surely they will have regard for him. But the tenants saw him coming and talked among themselves and said, he's the heir. If we kill him, we can have the property. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus then, said, then says, what would, should the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, the upshot of all this is that Jesus understands the difference between himself and the prophets. He also understands that he's going to be killed. Now, at one level, all the questions arise as to whether or not this parable goes back to the historical Jesus, uh, whether it's a product of the, of, of the early church, uh, and so on. I think it does go back to Jesus. Uh, what In what form, I have no idea. Luke tells us it goes back to Jesus. I'll accept Luke's expression in that regard. And what it says is that Jesus understands that he is 
related to the prophetic work, but that his work is radically different and more profound and decisive. After him, there's not going to be another one. This parable can't go on. It doesn't go on to say, well, after that he sent his second son, or then he went himself, or something like that. It doesn't do that. This is it. This is decisive. Because it is the rejection of the one we're, we're about to find out who's the stone the builders rejected. It's the rejection of him that changes everything. 